0: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I am your host, Aparna Gopal, and today we will be discussing Land's End, Capitalist Relations on an Indigenous Frontier, a book that came out with Duke University Press in 2014 and was written by Professor Tanya Lee. If you want to read just one book to properly understand capitalism, it has got to be Land's End. This might seem like a strange choice since how can a study of a faraway and possibly exotic indigenous place shed light on our global realities of joblessness and rising inequality? But it can, and it does. The book is a masterpiece of social scientific scholarship and critical political praxis. Through a longitudinal ethnography conducted over 20 years, the book follows the consequences of indigenous Highlanders' fateful decision to plant the booming cash crop of the 1990s, cocoa. That decision, Lee shows, was the reason that capitalism took root and developed a pace in the highlands over the coming decades. All the telltale signs of capitalist relations emerge: Land was privatized, commons eroded, classes differentiated, and wealth and poverty co-created. But instead of coming as an imposition from the outside, from the state or from transnational corporations, capitalism grew within the highlands, in the intimate spaces between kin and neighbors who had all planted cocoa, hoping it would lead them to a better life, and many of whom instead ran into a dead end, land's end. The dilemmas and challenges that land's end brought are explored with care, compassion, and a critical eye in Lee's astonishingly lucid prose. The book is a challenge to both development discourse that insists that only capitalism can improve the lives of the rural poor and to social movements, which insist that indigenous people must be protected from capitalism's unwanted encroachment. Neither of these two sides of the debate can account for the situation that many Lao Highlanders find themselves in. Landless, jobless, dependent on the market for survival, desirous of joining the March of Progress, and yet facing a grim future. Tanya Lee has once again brought to light the most critical and pressing issues of our time in a book that is a must-read for everyone who cares about poverty and inequality. Anthropologists, historians, economists, activists, policymakers and development professionals will all find a great deal of value in this remarkable work. I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Lee earlier today. I have with me today Professor Tanya Lee. Author of Land's End. Professor Lee, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. So, you had a long and distinguished academic career, um, but how did it begin? What led you to become an anthropologist and to focus on rural Indonesia?
1: I had to become an anthropologist, probably my family background. I came from rather eccentric but adventurous English folks. My mother was brought up in Paraguay in the Chaco. My parents had traveled a lot in Asia. Uh, and I ended up living in Singapore as a teenager, which got me uh, interested in the region I was living in, and I think that's probably where it all started. Uh, why rural Indonesia? Um, I was always interested in um, rural affairs, studying rural areas. I think I, I first went to Sarawak when I was 16 and spent a couple of months living in a long house. That was my idea, but I didn't actually do that work for my uh, PhD dissertation. I that was an urban study in Singapore, partly for practical reasons. I had small children. Uh, But I started this rural research on a postdoc in 1990 and just kept doing it, basically. Um, Yeah. And how did you come to write Land's End specifically?
0: Um, uh, The book is written in this refreshingly clear prose. So although we're reading about you know, concepts like capitalism and indigeneity, in the text itself, there is no separation between the empirical and the theoretical. So how did you decide to write the book in this way? And what were your goals?
1: Oh, well, I feel that um ethnographic you know I, I think there's a huge value for the kind of density of ethnographic writing I'm a very um you know a committed ethnographer but many ethnographies that one reads these days um, start off with a chapter of a really dense theoretical exegesis where the author is um, Addressing a whole range of interlocutors, um, you know, in the discipline, and although that has its place, I think that's a, quite alienating for many readers who are not uh, aware of all those debates, who are not so involved in all the nuances, and who would actually sort of like to get going with the story and to find out what they're supposed to find out from reading this ethnography. So my standard for, for theoretical writing is um, to be very parsimonious, to figure out exactly what are the concepts I need in order to um, understand and explain the phenomenon I'm working on, introduce them as clearly as I can, and then put them to use in the analysis, um, but you know, not to clutter the text with um, 101 detailed, uh, no doubt very important skirmishes, but things which would be for most readers um, not the main message. So I don't. I think the book is has a strong theoretical um, thread to it, um, but uh, it's. I try to tell it um, in a way that all the concepts a reader would need are presented. You know, you don't have to have read 25 other books in order to understand this one. You just have to read the introductory chapter where the concepts are explained and, and then you should have what you need. So that's my standard. I, I always try to write in that way. I want to the reader to be invited in and not alienated by the wading through of things which are not perhaps of great interest to everybody.
0: Um. That Yeah, that's definitely... Um comes through in the book where one feels very definitely very invited in even if one is not familiar with the area or even the process you're describing. So in keeping with that spirit, could you briefly lay out the main arguments of Land's End for our listeners and in the process talk about how you define capitalism um, and what it means for capitalism to emerge from below?
1: So um, many... First of all, many classic agrarian studies texts have uh, wrestled with this question of capitalism. There was a big literature on, uh, you know, when is the peasant not a peasant? When are they really a petty commodity producer? You know, there there is a a theoretical literature around this question of the emergence of capitalism in agriculture. And, you know, to what extent uh, small scale producers, sometimes called peasant producers, are distinct um, so that was certainly, you know, material that I had in mind and wasn't, uh, in a sense responding to, um, but, uh, at the same time, um, I felt that it could be, uh, the key dynamic that I was seeing, um, was very well explained in terms, um, offered, by the two scholars in particular that I cite, Robert Branner and um, Ellen Wood, both of whom were looking at the early emergence of capitalism in agriculture, and made the really crucial distinction between um, what they called uh, market as opportunity versus market as compulsion. So the place where I was studying, the people I was uh, working with, had very long been involved in market exchange. They were not people who were baffled by money or markets. They had actually produced tobacco for the uh, trade um, in the 1820s, um, which some of which was exported to the Netherlands. So they had familiarity with markets. They had produced various cash crops. They also occasionally um, paid each other for work. So even wage labor was not completely alien to them. But the difference was that uh, they could decide to sell, you know, you have surplus corn or rice, you can decide to sell some uh, if you want to. Uh, everybody needs money. You know, if you have a surplus, why not? Uh, if you have a few days spare when you don't need to work on your own fields and your neighbor wants some help, um, you can go and work for them. That's market as opportunity, an opportunity to sell something, you know, because it seems attractive, uh, which is very different from market as compulsion, which really is the hallmark of capitalism. If you think about somebody who has become landless, um, they now have no choice at all um, except to labour for someone else. Um, every day, right? So for them, engaging in the market for labor is no longer just something you do when an opportunity presents. You're now compelled to do that. And that's what makes um, the, the core of capitalist relations. Private property and land is an essential part of it, because you have to be denied access, independent access to land in order to have to work for someone else. Um, But also, even people who have land, if it's a a too small area that isn't sufficient for you to grow your own food, so you can't reproduce your family autonomously, you have to engage in the market. You now have to do that, which means you have to plant a higher value crop and hope that when you sell it, you'll make enough money so that you can buy food. So once you can no longer produce your own food – you are now effectively compelled to engage in the market. And how quickly that, and the tipping point from market as opportunity to market as compulsion, is what they define as the kind of core of the capitalist um, transition. And that was exactly what I saw unfold in my um, field study. So I hadn't set out to study capitalism, um, but that's. What actually emerged in front of my eyes as this transition um, got underway, Um, it began around 1990 as Highland farmers started to replace their food crops, which they were planting on shared um, ancestral land. Um, They were growing corn and rice and some cash crops, but on their shared land, land which was rotated among them, Uh, Basically, everyone living in the highlands had access to land. Uh, There wasn't even a rental market for it. Everyone who wanted to farm could access a corner of ancestral land and farm it. Once they started to plant a new crop, in this case, cocoa, which was a boom crop throughout the region uh, in the 1990s, uh, effectively planting a tree crop, uh, a long-term crop, had the effect of privatizing the land. So that was a kind of enclosure from below. Now everyone has their own land with cocoa on it, but that meant that the remaining land was now completely insufficient for food production. So now everyone has their plots of cocoa and uh, that's what they have now to depend on. So those who were able to grow their cocoa um, efficiently, you know, um, those who had enough scale of um, cocoa holding that they could afford to buy food to feed the family, buy inputs to feed the farm, um, have some extra to expand, maybe so that the next generation could also have um, a farm. Uh, Those were the people who prospered and the people whose scale of operation was too small, who... Spent perhaps on other things instead of buying farm inputs, um, whose farms, whose cocoa farms basically collapsed into disease and underproduction, uh, they ended up lo- losing their land. So that was the dynamic that unfolded uh, really before my eyes over the period of my study. And that is a classic capitalist story. You know, the story of a switch from market as opportunity to market as compulsion, underwritten by private property and land and uh, another element um, which I describe in the book and which actually makes the title of the book um, Land's End, right? The absence of a a new land frontier. Uh, So if you failed in the cocoa economy, you couldn't just do what farmers in previous eras had done, which is just go over the hill and clear a new patch of land and start again. If not in the parents generation maybe the young people would do that but when the land frontier has closed you no longer have that option now you're locked in into what has increasingly become a class position of a landowner or a landless person or a person with an insufficient land holding so that that was what shifted it was a completely remarkable but in a way, absolutely textbook case of the emergence of capitalist relations from below.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, the book traces this sort of um, intensifying of capitalist relations over the decades in the Highlands. Um, But this is a shift that you and your interlocutors don't necessarily have the same understanding of. So how is it that you were able to trace this shift when the people who were living through it weren't necessarily understanding it in the same way? And how do you deal with the fact as an analyst that you and your interlocutors understand the shift differently? What does it mean?
1: Well, so there's a a couple of elements here. I mean, um, in some ways, you know, that's... I, I feel that our job as ethnographers is not just to describe and not just to attempt to capture the native's point of view. You know, we do need to do that, but we also need to analyze and explain um, what we're seeing. So that's where theory comes in. You know, my, I read my Marx, Lenin, all the other agrarian studies scholars. So I, was, I had a framework for making sense of this, which was not available to them but I was always very attentive to their explanations of what was going on because their explanations are, of course, causal in this, right? That they act in terms of what they think is happening. And uh, so what I tried to do uh, as a writer was to flag for the reader this difference, not to try to speak for them or just echo their point of view, I mean, obviously to describe that, but at the same time to flag, okay, this is me here, this is my analysis. And so, you know, keeping the two voices um, a bit uh, distinct so that uh, the reader would, would know who is speaking here um my interlocutors had not read lenin <laughs> they were not thinking in these terms um their key understanding of what had happened was really the one that i capture in the title of the book land's end what they said was wow we're really short of land here now you know there's all this cocoa everywhere we have no space for our rice and corn anymore in the old days If we were short of a patch of land, we could always borrow from our neighbors, from our kin. No one wants to lend land anymore because everybody wants to convert it to cocoa and there's no more forest. You know, we've come to the end. So their understanding of the key shift was that land had come to an end. So I flagged that and in fact made it the title. But the question was, why had land come to an end? Like, what was it that had made uh, land abundance, which was present in the 1990s, and uh, the emergence of private property and land and all the consequences of that in terms of how two classes emerged during this period, they didn't really have um, a way of theorizing that. But more interestingly, Um, Of course, they observed it, but they didn't think it was all that interesting. So when I sat down with them on my visits, one of my techniques for the research um, was to, each time I went back, uh, sit down with my initial list of the people in each of the hamlets that I got to know and say, okay, so with this list, um, this person here... Has he been buying land? Has he been selling? What's he growing? What's she growing? Like basically you get a little update on all the farmers in the hamlet. And each time I did that, it became clear, um, you know, two years later, someone had over that interim period acquired five more plots, including some in other hamlets, and somebody else had lost the only plot they had, right? So that richer getting richer, poorer getting poorer, was obvious from the data that I produced together with um, my interlocutors. But when I said this to them, look, guys, this is what's happening. They said, yes, that is true. Um, It was not that that they had not observed the pattern, but they just did not – think it was a big drama, uh, whereas I did. And so uh, because of my framework of analysis, which said to me, actually, the emergence of agrarian classes and the emergence of private property and land and landlessness and the dynamic of accumulation on one side and land loss on the other is a big drama, right? It's one of the main things that social scientists have tried to understand. And so what became for me really interesting was trying to understand that difference Why was what I thought was a big drama something they took in their stride and treated as actually quite banal? And so that is one of those, you know, uh, interesting ethnographic puzzles, like how to account for the way that they were able to undertake this, what from an outsider and a theoretical perspective, momentous shift in a way which seemed to them as just, um, not quite business as usual, but something kind of that could be accommodated within their own um, frameworks of explanation and also frameworks of action. So that's, I think, one of the main contributions of the book. And that's what uh, was really the benefit of the technique of repeated visits. And we haven't mentioned in this recording so far, but... This was a study that I undertook over 20 years. So it started in 1990 and the last visit in 2009. So 20 years of, uh, I think, a total of about 11 visits, shortest two weeks, longest 12 weeks. But basically, each time I went back, I could see this process unfolding and I could f- check in with people about, what they were thinking, what they were doing, what they were struggling over at that moment, and also what they were taking in their stride. So in the early years, what I was really tracking was this process of enclosure. You know, so who's getting to put their cocoa where and what are the struggles over it? Is this all consensual? Are people pushing back? And there was some pushback, right? Sometimes you'd wake up in the morning and a whole field of new cocoa seedlings had been, uh, uprooted or cut down or set on fire, you know, arson. Um, so there was some, uh, struggle over enclosure, but what I found over time was that those initial struggles settled down. So the drama of the moment two, three years later had actually been resolved. You know, everyone had their cocoa in their place and there was no more cutting it down and setting fire to it. Like people had basically conceded to the enclosure of their neighbors and their kin, and their own enclosures had been effectively accepted, and they were holding solid. So private property in an area which has absolutely no paper, right? There were no paper documents, there were no land titles. This was customary shared land, which, not outsiders, but the people themselves, the owners of this shared customary land effectively divided up among themselves and privatized, not by discussing it, but by planting cocoa on it. And over time, it it settled. So it, I couldn't have known that had I visited only once. You know, at the time of the initial enclosure, I could have told that as a story of like big drama, you know, there's burning each other's cocoa down. But over time, I could see actually a new property regime emerged, which was supported by the Highlanders themselves, you know, as in they they said it's completely incorrect to go cutting down other people's cocoa trees. What a waste of their labor and capital and so on. We don't do such things. You know, if someone does that, we will find them. You know, we will uh, consider that a breach of our customary way of doing things up here. So a new, still customary, still oral, still basically supported among the people, but a new property regime did emerge so I, I that was sort of an early drama and then as differentiation emerged you know the process of accumulation by some land loss by others I w- was very attentive to well, how are they doing this like how do you justify saying to your sister who lives next door you can't plant your corn on this field because this is mine now and i'm going to plant cocoa here how do you actually implement a private property regime and a regime of exclusion among kin at the point where your sister really needs a place to plant her corn because she's lost all her other land, right? So this is where it gets really painful as the squeeze is on. How do people handle these increasingly unequal relations? And so, you know, those kinds of the minutiae of how people handled inequality, also how they handled the emergence of wage labor. You know, again, that's something which, as I said, they did it occasionally in the past too, but not under conditions of compulsion, how do you handle this increasingly awkward relationship in which your neighbors and kin are coming to you as a landowner saying, give me work because I have nothing and I need to buy a few kilos kilos of rice for my family. How do you say no to them? Or do you say no to them? Or how do you actually handle on a an intimate basis these newly emerging forms of exclusion so it was um, it was fascinating to watch and I think it gave me in a a close-up uh, insight into a process which as I said before I mean thousands of social scientists have tried to understand the emergence of private property, inequality, and classes. But few people have really had the chance to kind of watch it happen um, blow by blow, while having access to people's own understandings, explanations, reflections, doubts, dilemmas, you know, that kind of thing. So that was what I tried to capture in the book, that these are people, they aren't box figures, as you sometimes got in the old agrarian literature, like the landlord, the worker, you know, those were categories. But in Landsend, I think you get to know them as people who in 1990 were all pretty much the same. And over time, their paths diverged, but they continue to be people that we know and whose uh, dilemmas um, the reader can be exposed to. You know, to, to understand how does someone deal with this, these awkward situations that they're now facing. Um, so I tell the story of one guy, I call him Hamdan, who I, I'd known as a teenager, went on to be a very successful farmer. Um, and he became a money lender. Um, he had money and his kin expected him to lend it. You know, so they understood being a money lender as something helpful. They didn't hate him because he lent money at interest. They were grateful that he was willing to lend and therefore help them out of a tight spot. But after a while, you know, he felt there was too much tension. There was too much gossip. um, People were not repaying their loans and were taking advantage of him. So he made the difficult decision to just stop lending altogether. He would rather just focus on his farm of course, he was giving up an income stream from from interest, but for him, the social cost, the awkwardness was not worth it. And so he stopped. So, you know, that was a the dilemma faced by a person that I knew and um, whose family I knew, whose mother I knew. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to talk to him about this dilemma that he faced, right? So he's not just the the bad capitalist exploiting the people or the money lender as kind of evil guy. Um, you know, he's a human being with a dilemma on his hands. And, you know, there were many characters like that in the book. Um, so that was that was one something um, that I think is one of the contributions that you can make from this repeat visit kind of technique. Uh, seeing how both struggles and dilemmas uh, play out over time.
0: Yeah, and what um, about the before? So you were there before enclosure fully took hold. Um, what were some of the elements from the pre-Coco um, era which you have mentioned some, like certain kinds of reciprocity, which disappeared. But then what were the elements from the pre cocoa era, which supported, you know, the new land regime? Um, because you show that Highlanders, for example, had this Lockean understanding of property, um, which perhaps was one of the reasons that when the new land regime came, they didn't see it as such a radical rupture from the ways in which they had been understanding property before so could you speak a bit more about you know the, the pre cocoa time and and the shifts yeah
1: right so when i first went there in 1990 as i mentioned um these highlanders were growing um mainly rice and corn, their primary food crops um also cassava and other root crops on commonly held ancestral land and uh so everyone's uh, mode, there was very little di- division of labor, one could say. You know, everyone's growing pretty much the same thing in pretty much the same way, um, and everyone had access to land. So it was as re- highly egalitarian in that sense. What I found, though, was that these Highlanders had, had a very feisty sense of individual ownership, and this included women and children. So uh, wives had farms separate from their husbands, Um, They expect a a woman who grew uh, a fine crop of shallots, their main cash crop, um, considered herself the owner, um, sold it herself um, to the trader in the market, um, enjoyed the feeling of having her own money so that she could buy herself a new blouse if she wanted or buy something for the children or give some money to her husband for his um, tobacco, you know, basically um, a strong sense of individual ownership. And the the underlying idea was that if it's your sweat, you know, this is hard physical work. Like if it's your labor, you should be the one to feel the reward. And so they carried this thinking uh, out to quite a high degree. So um, children as well were encouraged to have their own farms. So by the age of about 12 or so, um, parents would give Uh, a kid, boy or girl, a plot of land and say, um, here's a bag of uh, groundnut seeds, you know, plant them. And when the harvest comes, uh, we'll take you down to the market and you can buy yourself a new shirt or something that the kid wanted. So um, highly individualistic, one could say. And at one stage I struggled with, well, is this really a book about individualism? Is that the main theme? But I think the problem with individualism is that it becomes a rather clunky vehicle because what was really uh, remarkable was the combination of a strong sense of individual autonomy and ownership of labor, you know, my labor, my reward, together with a huge network of reciprocal exchanges. But if you think about it, the two are very, it makes sense that the two are connected. I can only have fun giving a gift to you if it belongs to me, if it's mine, I can give it to you and I can have the pleasure and pride in making you a gift of it. If it doesn't belong to me, you know, I can't form a relationship with you by giving you something. And so, um, that idea, uh, which I tried to capture in the chapter called work and care, to capture those two elements, you know, on the one hand, you know, work is something done by an individual, but this whole network of reciprocal exchanges has to do with the pleasure and pride in giving something to someone else. So you see your sister-in-law struggling to bring in her harvest, and you show up and say, I'm going to help you today right you can just give her a gift of your labor or other kinds of reciprocity which were more balanced like okay my sister-in-law have an exchange going you know we work together on her plot one day and then my plot tomorrow husbands and wives did the same you know a, basically a reciprocal exchange so there were exchanges which were you know as the anthropologists back in the day called generalized reciprocity you know you help out without keeping a close account balanced reciprocity, which was uh, where accounts were kept, you know you were expected to give back um, a day for a day um, and you know other forms of exchange. So it was it was that kind of uh, combination of individual ownership and um, the forming of relationships through work and care um, that I really traced. So the interesting thing then, of course, is, well, how does a system like that morph? You know, what, how does that shift? If we understand culture as I do, um, not as a text uh, or a code, but as a repertoire. You know, it's like it's a repertoire of ways of thinking and acting. And I think, you know, Raymond Williams um, described what he called um, selections from tradition. So from this repertoire, you know, one can select certain elements and highlight them. And other elements are not exactly ever rejected but they recede you know they're no longer brought into play they're still there you know in the repertoire but they're going to be in the background while some other elements come to the fore so um in trying to understand the changes um that was uh really the approach I took, and I actually used the metaphor of um you know water on a stream bed, this idea that some of the old ways of doing things eroded uh you know water on the stream bed it's sort of after a while you know initially many paths are possible, but after a while the stream wears the bed lower or um, deeper, and other other ways the water could have flowed are still in theory possible, but actually um, not much followed, you know, Um, they, they they no longer really hold. And so that seemed to be a good way of explaining how these, what I still thought of as momentous changes could kind of be taken in stride in the sense that what was happening was a minor and piecemeal resignification or, selection, rather than a wholesale, we're rejecting our old ways. And now we're going to live in a new way. So for example, um, food sharing, which was prominent in the old days, like bundles of corn were going everywhere around the hills, corn was also sometimes sold. So you know, I traced the different ways that corn traveled as a gift, um, in terms of reciprocity, You know, you hope you'll get a bundle back when your neighbor's corn comes in, but also for sale, like all of these were available. Um, So the idea of selling food to your neighbors was not unheard of. It just wasn't the only way that corn was transferred. But after a while, um, that whole question of how food had traveled and under certain conditions being shared sort of went mute because no one grew any corn anymore. So it wasn't that they rejected food sharing. They just didn't grow food. And so now the whole question of how it used to be distributed and shared and circulate just doesn't really have a place anymore. So it it was never discussed. It was never rejected. It was never even discussed um, to my surprise uh, nostalgically. Um, But... It basically disappeared, and systems of labor exchange disappeared for the same reason. they were heavily attached to the rice production, which requires a a big group of workers on one day, ideally to kind of plant the whole field and The reason for that is very practical. Uh, you want all your rice to ripen at the same time, so that the pests, especially the birds. As they say you know you want to share the birds with all your neighbors so ideally a whole hillside will be planted within a matter of days big groups of workers will plant each of the fields in turn and then uh the birds will be shared because everything will ripen together if you have the one lone field ripening first right the the birds will get it all right so there's a, a practical reason for coordination for labor sharing um And if you just looked at that by itself, it's like, oh, how wonderful is indigenous people and their labor sharing? You might think that that could be detached from its conditions of possibility. But actually, when no one grew any more rice, there really was no need of such labor coordination, and it just disappeared. You know, the labor needs of cocoa were quite different. So some of those changes, the shifts from the before to the after, were these Kind of small morphings um you know where either something the whole need for it just diminished and eventually disappeared, or there was a morphing of the meaning, so you know to come back to your idea about Locke, you know there was this existing idea that what you work for belongs to you, right the strong idea of what you know Locke called the kind of labor theory of property um So that was available when people started to plant cocoa. It's like my labor, I planted these trees. Now the land and the trees are mine. That was available in the repertoire. It wasn't a new idea. It just came to have a different meaning under new circumstances in which what was being planted was a permanent tree crop, which would have the effect of enclosing land. So I think that's... that's, um, I hope another contribution of the book is like, you know, how can one understand these processes of social change in a way which um, doesn't, which gives people credit for being kind of thoughtful uh, agents, for having reflections on what they're doing um, without, uh, you know, trying to make them like the analyst, you know, with a crystal ball, you know, with a plan who somehow has a schema for how this is all going to play out and is maneuvering or manipulating or, um, uh, you know, acting uh, as if they, yeah, I mean, the idea of of the... uh, No one in 1990, I could say, anticipated the way this would go. Um, But that didn't mean they were acting in a vacuum, right? They were acting in terms of the apparatus that they had, their repertoire for thinking and acting in terms of labor, property, how you relate to others around you, what you share, and so on. This is...
0: This is something you actually describe really, um, I think, compellingly. Uh, you call it an analytic of conjuncture, um, and I and I found myself wondering what have been, what are the other ways that this has, this issue has been taken up, if not conjuncturally, what what were you intervening in, you know, by by coining that term, and like for example, how you show with the materiality of the tree crop that that itself becomes a significant element of the conjuncture. Um, And yet, you know, it has to sort of align with everything else that already exists. Um, And doesn't any one element doesn't determine um, and yet all together, you know, produce something. Um, What, you know, what what are some of the other ways of um, misunderstanding the situation, which you were sort of hoping to correct with this analytic of conjuncture? Um,
1: well, I guess part of it was the, the kind of the steamroller version of capitalism or even, um, you know, overly generalizing discussion of things like neoliberalism or globalization. You know, you get the idea that there's a juggernaut out there, which is just going to mow everything down and transform everything in its path. Um, whereas as other you know people, other especially geographers, you know, have really um, shown us um and you know, I got this idea of, of arti- processes articulated together at a specific conjuncture. It partly comes from, you know, the British Marxist Stuart Hall, etc., but it also comes a bit from Doreen Massey, right? From the geographer um, who also looked at how this takes place spatially, you know, really emphasizing the place in which and the time in which this set of forces comes together. So I think... Anthropologists, ethnographers have always done this, paid attention to the specificity of the location with all its characteristics. What I was trying to do was to um, treat this, I was trying to to get away, well, on the one hand, from the steamroller steamroller idea, but on the other hand, from the problem of um, the kind of isolated field site or um the kinds of uh way of bounding a field which was you know criticized in anthropology a couple of decades ago. You know, think of um Gupta and Ferguson's work on, you know, on place, um, as if as if you could just study the highlands and draw a boundary around these hamlets and everything you needed to know took place there so for me the idea of conjuncture kind of worked in anthropology too as a um, as a s- suggestion of a way in which we could take advantage of the intensity of the field work that we do which is at a place at a time with a certain group of people not give up on that because that's really very valuable but not treat that place as An isolate or as a bounded unit. So, the the conjuncture idea, the way I envisaged it, was a bit like a confluence of, of, of sort of streams or forces. So, some of these, I argued, you know, spatially have very long spatial tails. So, for example, the price of cocoa on a global market is going to arrive in this place and have a very specific effect when it meets up with other relations some of which are have very short spatial tails, like is your field on the north facing slope or the south facing slope which will affect whether or not the crop you want to plant will do well there right so some of the things that the spatiality is highly local but that's also affected by, in this case, you know, a global a global market crop set with a global uh, in a global currency pegged in the U.S. dollar. Of course, there's a national element. The crash of the rupiah in the financial crisis of 1997 suddenly cocoa tripled in price, and these Highlanders um, went crazy planting it. Right, so you can see how forces at different spatial scales intersected there to produce these outcomes. And I think, um, temporally, one could think in a similar way. You know, some of the patterns that I was seeing had been laid down over centuries. You know, the influence of missionaries, um, histories of relationship between the coast and the highlands. Um, you know, there was a a long historical tale to those and others had a much shorter span. But so the way I saw it is that, you know, with this idea of conjuncture, you don't have to decide on this or fix the scale of your analysis and say, I will draw my boundary here. You just have to focus on what's going on in the site, knowing that some of it is connected by Um, you know forces and relations which have a very long spatial or temporal horizon and others of which are more immediate and that all of those are formative so that that was it was partly a response to the or an attempt to deal with the scale issue and not to recreate recreate a sort of isolated other world Um, yeah I think those were the two my ambitions with that term but I, I don't say it's Original. Like I said, I think anthropologists have always been doing this, but I just tried to make it explicit. And I guess the third element that you just pointed to is like the range of elements admitted to this conjuncture. So I think that's perhaps where, an, you know, classic agrarian studies literature wouldn't have included um, the role of the spirits, of the landscape, um, you know, the fact that half the Highlanders were addicted to gambling, (laughs) you know, it's like all kinds of social and cultural idiosyncrasies, which um, I think an analysis just hooked on understanding capitalism may overlook, but they were also formative here, right? They also played a role in how things unfolded. And, uh, you know, an anthropologist doesn't have to choose, you know, which ones to um, uh, address, Of course, you know, you don't address everything, but, you know, you you can work with uh, a set of elements which is more diverse than would be admitted into an analysis, which was only looking at things like price of, um, you know, prices, cost of labor, you know, factors of production, sorts of issues. So I guess that was the third element. You could have fun, you know, really thinking about, well, what is at play here? Mm.
0: And just as you point to all the diverse things that do articulate, you also, you know, begin signaling there are some failed articulations here. For example, um, there hasn't been, as you say, a counter movement amongst the Highlanders. And that's not just a result of, you know, them normalizing the transition, but also a failure of potential allies to see the Highlanders as sort of the kind of subject they could ally with. For example, social movements um, didn't see the Highlanders as appropriate subjects, resistant subjects with whom to collaborate and whom to, who to mobilize. So, um, why, why was that? And what, you know, can social movement activists take from this book?
1: Right. So this is something I've, you know, I've thought quite a bit about and I've written quite a bit about, um, the, uh, the way that, Um, certain subjects uh, kind of fit or fail to fit what I think of as the kind of place of recognition that social movements provide. So for the food sovereignty movement, for example, that's one kind of social movement, farmers movement. Um, The decisions that the Highlanders made to shift from food production um, to growing a global market crop was just a disaster, you know, that suggested that they um, somehow were mistaken. You know, they'd given up food autonomy in favor of dependence on a global market crop whose prices and so on, uh, you know, they could not control. Um, and it's true, it turned out to be a pretty risky move. Uh, I My goal was to try to understand why they did this, you know, not to just dismiss them as fools who'd somehow made a terrible mistake, but to understand the world as they saw it. So for them, their previous food regime had not been um, secure. They were subject to the El Nino drought cycle, which is very vigorous in this area. So they had experience of years of abundant rice and corn so much, you know, they couldn't eat it, they couldn't even sell it, you know, just abundant crops. And other years in which their food production collapsed completely. Uh, you know, six or eight months of intense El Nino drought, during which everything shriveled up and died, which were for them terrifying times. Like, how do you survive? You can't go to help for your from ask for help from your kin because they have nothing as well. So, um, you know, food security was something that they were very alert to, and they actually thought that having a lucrative cash crop and some money, you know, hidden uh, somewhere. In their house, <laughs> probably not in the bank, um, would be a way of uh, helping them through those deep and scary periods of drought, which were surely going to come. Um, and in, in fact, the cocoa plants did tend to survive the droughts; they didn't uh, produce much fruit, but they didn't die. And so, you know, people looked at this and they said, "Well." we weren't that secure secure before either. So, you know, there are some benefits to this. So uh, my message to the food sovereignty movement is, you know, we need to, and I'm sure, you know, there's very sophisticated proponents of this movement who are very aware of this, but uh, not in all conditions will autonomous food production actually make people secure. It might leave them radically vulnerable. And we have to be, um, you know, maybe learn from the anthropologists to uh, be alert to the range of economic and social uh, concerns which drive people's decisions. Uh, In the case of the Highlanders, there was a social element as well. They felt that they had been um, treated as, you know, backward folk, um, very much uh, scorned by coastal people who saw them as savages uh effectively and they wanted to change their social standing and you know that too was a valid goal so um in relation to the indigenous peoples movement it's a bit similar right because uh there the the love of the movement is with people who have customary tenure regimes which they um value and preserve and so the fact that these highlanders dismantled their customary um, certainly their collective tenure regime in favor of private property and land even though i would say it was still customary in the sense that it was still supported a system supported by themselves it wasn't that it was backed up by state or law or anything it was still customary but it was no longer a collective land sharing system as it had been And that seems to some people in the Indigenous Peoples Movement like a total disaster. That must be a mistake. And, you know, in some ways you could say, you know, they're right. I mean, the consequence of private property and land was a deep um, and uh, enduring inequality. And for many people, it was destitution. But that's a hindsight view. And again, you know, one needs to understand what were they trying to achieve by this transition that they entered into and recognize that, you know, half of them in fact succeeded in greatly improving their standard of living. They got better houses, they had better clothing, they had better food, and they could afford to send their children to school, which was a big goal for them. So my message to, to these movements is just, let's just, you know, be ethnographers and try to look in the round at how people are living and what are the issues that they are struggling with as they see them and enter into that conversation from the point of, from the perspective of a kind of respectful interlocutors rather than um being a bit too certain that you know the outsiders know the proper way to live, and if people fail to conform to those uh, values and desires and practices, they're somehow um, not lovable anymore. You know, they don't deserve our support. They don't deserve our understanding. We should just dismiss them because they're are, you know they're on the wrong path. So you know, I did try to introduce some of my. Um, uh, comrades in the social movement and coming to this area. I said, come and see for yourselves. And they, I was never very successful in persuading them because it seemed to them such a disappointing subject. And I think that is a bit of a problem. Of course, part of it from a movement's perspective has to do with the public face of a movement and its use of iconic uh, subjects um, in order to tell a simple story and gather support Um, The story I tell here complicates uh, many um, advocacy platforms. So it's not necessarily one that, uh, you know, activists want to promote. But I would say my own, you know, dialogues with people and movements have been uh, very productive, right? And people are interested in understanding these dynamics because, of course, they know that they are going on, right? You you can't really run a movement which is based on a fantasy or based on an image which does not match the life of your assumed constituency in, in terms, you know, in whose name you are advocating the movement. So there's a lot of awareness of that. And I've had uh, lots of uh, conversations with people about the lessons from Land's End. Okay, so if this is what is happening and this is how people are reacting and these are the dilemmas they face, Now what? Right. You can have a different kind of conversation with the ethnographic um, material in hand than you could have in a vacuum over, um, you know, what should be the proper platform and what images to promote. So, you know, there's just two kinds of uh, relationship there, I would say. In some ways, I've been a bit of an irritant to the movement, but in other ways, I think I've been a useful—I <laughs> think—useful um, sounding board and uh, a bit of a reality check. Not always um, easy role to play, but uh, I think it's it's necessary, and um, it's a dialogue that I continue to engage in.
0: Mm. And and you do so even in your upcoming projects, um, which sort of begin to focus on what happens to people and to groups of people once, you know, they lose their land and they become um, surplus to the needs of capital. So what are some of the things that you're working on now and um, how do they continue or depart from the story that you tell
1: in this book? So, uh, the social movements that we've just been discussing, the food sovereignty movement, indigenous people's movement, you know, their vision would uh, keep people on the land, um, you know, producing food, cash crops, etc. It would be very much a kind of sedentary image of people staying where they are. Um, but the truth is all across rural Asia, people are being displaced from the land, sometimes through processes from below, like the one I traced in Land's End, where half the Highlanders ended up landless and may you know need to find some other means of survival. Uh, but also the one I'm studying now in Kalimantan looking at the expansion of plantation agriculture, which displaces uh, very large numbers of people from their customary land when the plantation concession is granted. So one way or the other, um, many people are not able to stay on the land and live in the way that they were living before. And we'll need to find some other kind of livelihood. The assumption from the development uh, experts, the development literature, you know, World Bank et al., is that. All of this is natural and normal. You know, the inefficient producers from the land should, in fact, exit. They should find somewhere else to go and something else to do and leave the land to the more efficient producers. This could be the more efficient smallholders, like those successful highlanders I describe in Land's or it could be a plantation, you know, assumed to be an efficient production machine. But a lot of the people will not, in fact, be absorbed as labor in either these little cocoa farms, uh, which employed very little, or the plantations, which which also don't really employ a lot of workers and uh, ironically tend to favor migrant workers over locals. So um, what will happen? I think the development narrative uh, that we have inherited, which suggests there's some sort of uh, inevitable evolution from farm to factory, from country to city and that we can just count on this natural evolution to take care of things is a catastrophe. You know, there is no such certainty. And so the idea that you don't have to worry about the people who get displaced from the land because they will find their way, I think is um, really something which needs to be challenged, right? One needs to attend Um, very specifically to what happens, as I put it in something I uh, wrote a few years ago, you know, when the land is needed, but the people are not needed, um, what then will happen to them? So I've written about this in terms of uh, centering labor in the land grab debate, you know, basically what happens to the people is a question that we need to ask at a whole variety of scales and sites. So that is a project that I'm very interested in. I mean, first of all, empirically, what does happen to them? And what I found to my surprise, um, and this is reflected in the study of Lands End, uh, you know, in, in 2006, I saw that a number of Highlanders had become landless. They were verging on destitution. They did not have enough work. Um, what would they, I assumed when I went back three years later they would have gone, you know, that I wouldn't find them in place. They would have found, you know, somewhere else to go, something else to do. But they were still there. All of them were still there. They had not found an exit strategy. So they were holding on in what, you know, Jan Bremen calls um, rural slumlands, basically, you know, destitution in the countryside in, tucked in these nooks and crannies where people just hold on with extremely minimal um, livelihoods. And I found the same in the plantations, that that the uh, tucked in between um, massive plantations, each of them 10,000 hectares, are these little enclaves of the former landowners. And they are um, living in these little corners, effectively landless, not employed, by the plantation, and and they're stuck. They haven't found a way out. They really don't have a way out. So I think that's like empirically we should be interested in this, um, and also uh, politically we should be interested in uh, continually raising this question. Uh, And for me the importance of it is the narrative which says – um plantations are wonderful they bring development they bring jobs you know that's the main way in which they are in fact legitimated but is that actually the outcome you know what what it, what form of development who is going to be excluded from this uh who will be included on adverse terms who will be um sidelined uh who gets the jobs what kinds of jobs i think we we shouldn't let uh, a language of just leave it to the magic of capitalism, the rising tide will lift all boats. There is no evidence for that. Um, so we really need to be attentive to what happens to the people and to challenge those narratives, which suggest you don't have to worry about it because the problem will just take care of itself, you know, in the course of of time, um, alternatives will be found. Not necessarily. So that's, that's something I'm interested in. And I think that's a project which... Um, It's not just specific to Indonesia, it's a a global phenomenon. You know, my own students in Toronto, you know, worry about jobless and precarious futures. So they do not assume they're going to complete their education and march off into the world of a a job like mine, for example. So I think it's a a problem that's both north, south, urban, rural, but one that, uh, of course, many people are working on it. And what I've been contributing to this is the kind of rural end of things.
0: And, and and very important end of things as well, since most of the world's people um, live, you know, in villages and and are often invisible to much academic literature. So thank you so much, Professor Lee, for being with us and for working through all the kinks and talking to talking to us um, about your great book. And I look forward to reading, you know, more more from you.
1: Okay, thank you, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Bye. Bye.